This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 512th episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a three-time Grammy-winning singer-songwriter who is one of the biggest pop stars in the world. A Brit who has been described by the New York Times as a powerhouse young artist, by Vanity Fair as a bona fide superstar, and by Time Magazine as one of the world's most influential people, she has to her name hit singles like Levitating, Don't Start Now, Cold Heart, Last Dance, New Rules, Houdini, and, from Greta Gerwig's critically acclaimed summer blockbuster Barbie, Dance the Night, which, on November 10th, garnered Grammy nominations for Song of the Year and Best Song Written for Visual Media, and is now very much in the running for a Best Original Song Oscar nomination as well. Dua Lipa. Over the course of our conversation at the London West Hollywood, the 28-year-old and I discussed her childhood divided between London and Kosovo, how she wound up making her way into the music business and signing a record deal with Warner Brothers in 2015, the origins and bangers of her 2017 self-titled debut album and her 2020 pandemic-era second album, Future Nostalgia, how she came to be a part of Barbie and wrote with Mark Ronson, Caroline Aylin, and Andrew Wyatt, Dance the Night, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. Very excited to have you. And uh, on this one, we always begin truly at the beginning. Can you tell our listeners where you were born and what your folks did for a living? Yeah, I um, I was born in London in 1995. And I guess at that point, my parents were working in bars and restaurants um, while at the same time studying in the evening. I was going to say, I, you, people talk about your work ethic, and I know it's <laughs> major, but that's pretty... Yeah, well, I, I think I get most of my... Um, I get my, Not most, I get my work ethic from my parents yeah. and seeing them really adapt to any situation. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was where I was when I was born, and yeah. that's where they were. Now, they can... You know, you've, you've spoken about how um, a lot of your mindset, worldview, all of that is shaped by the immigrant experience. Can you just give mm. people a bit of a background about they were not from London? No. How did they wind up there? Yeah, so my parents moved to London in 1992. They um, left the Yugoslavian War. Uh, they left Kosovo then. And uh, my dad was uh, in a band. He was uh, in a rock group. And, but he was studying to be a dentist, and my mum was studying law at the time. So, in, yeah, in 1992, they, they decided to leave Kosovo and come to London. And, uh, yeah, I guess their, their life completely changed at that point. Um, and, yeah, I was born in 1995. Yeah. So Now, the yeah. fact that you're 
dad had been involved with music. Was that in any way part of what got you into music as a kid? What were you, uh, you know, how early on were you uh, uh, listening to and kind of a fan of music? <laughs> I, uh, from, I think from the moment I came out the womb, I was listening to music. Um, music was so present in my life. Both my parents just have always been, you know, singing around the house, playing artists that they love. I was always just, I think I had like a good range of knowledge of a lot of amazing artists and songs probably way before I could even speak. Um, so it was, uh, I don't know, it just, music just felt like second nature to me. And I, I read your, you know, sort of the people who now when we listen to your music, if you go back through like, the connecting the dots through history, it kind of makes sense based on who you were personally into as a kid, right? So can you share who some of the people were who? Yeah, so I guess um, artists that my parents listened to a lot were like David Bowie and uh, Elton John and Oasis and Blur and then um, Blondie. And it was just such a mix of so many different artists and I think for me, the the after listening to and loving all the music that my parents listened to, that became then my favorite music and, and the music that I always go back to is the music that makes me feel the best. Yeah. And um, I, I, I then, I, I remember, I think I was, I can't remember, maybe nine, 10, when, no, maybe 11, when um, I discovered like my favorite pop artists and that was like Nelly Furtado, Nelly Furtado. <laughs> it was the whoa Nelly album right. that really changed my life then it was like misunderstood by right. Pink right um and, and also like you know songs in a minor by Alicia Keys like all these women have such a strong uh identity in their own right and it was something when you're a young girl and you hear these artists and their stories and I just felt so connected so uh, all I wanted to do was sing their songs and listen to their music. And, you know, they had so much like independence and strength and attitude that I was like, oh, when I grow up, I want to be just like them. <laughs> there you go. Now, that being said, I could not believe, but you were being told as a kid, as you know, a lot of kids get into singing, dancing, whatever. You were being told you can't sing like well? Uh, it wasn't really, it wasn't, it was more like... Um, I wanted to sing for like the school choir yeah, yeah. and I have a very deep voice. Yes. Yeah. I think my speaking voice is quite deep. <laughs> um, my singing voice is also like I, 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 you know, me being able to to go down octaves is like my forte. Um, and at the time, my, my high register just wasn't developed at all. And I remember going, it was a school choir and the music teacher was like, okay, who wants to audition for the choir? And I was like, all right, I'm going to get up and I'm going to sing. And he starts playing on the piano and I'm trying to reach this high note and nothing but air comes out. And I just, I'm so embarrassed and it's in school assembly. So I'm in front of all the kids of all ages and I'm absolutely mortified in the moment. And he's like, oh, maybe next time. And I just never really get the part, well, the place in the, in the choir. But that experience never, you know, it, it, it was a big moment for me in the sense of like, having the confidence to stand up in front of people, sing, and, you know, maybe not having the outcome that I wanted. I was very young to have, I guess, that experience. But when um, 
because I just always loved to sing, my my mum signed me up for Saturday classes at Sylvia Young Theatre School. So every Saturday, I, I was about, yeah, I was nine years old when I started going there. And every Saturday I would go and do singing lessons. And I had this really great teacher there called Ray. And he he basically, he heard my voice and he really liked my low register and he was like, you know what, I'm going to change your class and I'm going to put you in at the 9.30 a.m. class, which was with the 14 and 15-year-olds. I was terrified. I was like, oh, my God, I have to go in with the teenagers. Yeah. And, um, you know, how am I How am I going to get up and sing in front of them? Like, how is that even going to, you know, work? And he really helped me just uh, believe in myself and have the confidence to stand up in front of the teenagers and sing and, and feel good about it. And it, it wasn't that my parents didn't tell me that I could sing. My parents always told me like, oh, you've got a good voice and you can sing. But it's like uh, believing your parents. Sometimes <laughs> they're like, oh, you know, I, I don't know. Right. Um, just I think hearing it from somebody that's not your mom or your dad means a lot, you know. And, uh, yeah. Well, so just as that's getting going, where you actually maybe have some belief in your own abilities, is when <laughs> you guys end up leaving to go yeah. back to Kosovo? Yes. So uh, what, were, what were the circumstances that led to that? So um, I guess the circumstances were my parents always um, had the idea of going back to Kosovo. I think uh, whenever somebody leaves, you know, a place because of the war. I think they they leave because it's the potential of possibly having a better life, or but always wanting to go back to your home, yeah. to your family, to the things that you know that you've grown up around. And Albanian was my first language. It was something that I've always spoken at home and English, at, you know, at school and you know with my friends. But I also spoke. It was like a mix of English and Albanian at home all the time. Um, and so. When my parents decided that we were going to move back to Kosovo when I was 11, I just, I, I was finishing year six, which um, is just, yeah, the, the end of primary school. And then um, I was like, okay, all my friends from my primary school, we're going to go to different schools anyway. Right. I was going to go to a different country. Um, so you weren't terribly devastated. I, I wasn't terribly, I was quite excited yeah. at the idea of going back. Um I think um, the th even when I went to Kosovo, I was so in Pristina, where I where I lived for four years. I was there from eleven to fifteen. I think the thing that was just the most um, interesting was adapting to being the new girl in school and being like, okay, not only am I starting in a new school, but I have to adapt to, you know people already having like formed friendships at the same time I knew I could speak Albanian but I thought I could speak it way better than I did because um at home everything was fine when I went to Kosovo everyone was like oh like you're you're speaking Albanian but almost like with an English accent or something <laughs> um and so it just it took me a little while to not only just get down with like the slang right, and learn right. it grammatically and read and write properly in Albanian, but also be thrown into uh, new friendships and new studies that were so much more advanced than what I was learning in London. Like I was doing fractions and then I went and was doing algebra <laughs> in Albanian. Right. 
So I had a, it was a very big kind of push me out my comfort zone experience while at the same time giving me the opportunity to be really in touch with my roots and my family and, you know, my language and, you know, my, my, my heritage. And were you continuing your singing in any way while, when you got back there? Yeah, I was, I was singing. So I, um, was then singing, uh, I had music lessons in, in, in school there. So I was singing there and I think that's when I kind of did like my first maybe, uh, performance in front of a crowd. Wow. It was like a school event and I, I chose to sing No One by Alicia Keys, um, and I think there's a video of it online. I'm so small, um, but you went can well. you can it went well. You yep. can re- like really see me like <laughs> holding the mic, being quite nervous, and then people clap. And I think like with confidence, I put my other hand on the mic and I'm like singing along. <laughs> it, it, I think I can really I, I really see myself and and the feeling that I felt when I see that video in that moment. But also my time that I spent in Kosovo made me realize how badly I wanted to do music. And how I also needed to go back to London and be in a place where everything was happening, where, you know, I had the, I maybe might have the opportunity to try and do this as a job. You know, I didn't feel like I could get discovered in Kosovo. Things were completely different then. And we should say you were there when they declared independence, right? I was there when when independence got declared, yes. But it was Um, still going to be a long shot to uh, get any kind of you know, career going there. Absolutely. I think, I think, you know, as, as the world is constantly changing, you know, and, and our world's just getting so much smaller at that time when, when I was 13, 14, 15, you know, living in Kosovo, it, it just wasn't possible to be in a place like that and, and hope that you might get heard. Um, and so I really, I wanted to go back to, I wanted to go back to London. So how does this conversation go? Because I'm thinking, you're you're 15 and you're saying to your parents i'm out of here but under what circumstances could you how did you get them to go along with this um you know now the older i get and i have younger siblings i've got a a, a younger sister and a younger brother when i saw them turn 15 in my head i was like i have no idea how i managed to <laughs> to pull this off and let them live me uh, get them to let me live on my own yeah. it was just I don't know. I was just so determined that I wanted to be in London. I wanted to go back to school in London. I also wanted the opportunity that maybe I might go to uni in London and I had to go and, and, you know, finish my GCSEs there and get my, you know, exams done. And I had to, you know, 15, I had to, I had to go back. I'm a very convincing young lady. I think that's, that's what I've gathered (laughs) from, uh, from, you know, when I go back and ask my parents. Um, but they just, every time I go and ask my parents, you know, how, how did you how did you let me do that? I mean, it, it was so amazing. They had so much trust in me. But they were like, you are just so determined. I feel like I always knew what I wanted to do from a very young age. Um, and so then, in order for them to feel obviously safe about the situation and good about leaving me in London. Of course, I had so many friends and, and family in London, but I, uh, a family friend of ours, her, their daughter was moving to London to study at the London School of Economics from Pristina. Mm-hmm. And so we decided we were going to flat share and we were going to live together and I was going to go to school and she was going to go to uni. And that was that. Worked out. Yeah. Well, so... 
correct me if any of this is wrong, but I see that there was some waitressing at La Bodega Negra. Yes. This is a Mexican restaurant there. Yeah. Um, some hostessing. Yes. A little modeling during that uh, period. So-so. Yeah. Um, you, you know what? I I always loved having a job. Yeah. Um, my first job was when I was 12, 13 years old. I was in Pristina. And I remember walking home and there was a pharmacy that I just passed by and there was a woman and she was just like basically selling makeup products. It was like the Avon equivalent, but it was like a Swedish brand. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I could do this, like slang some makeup to, to the girls in, in school. And I just love the idea of always working. Yeah. I love to work. And um, then when I moved to London, yeah, I I, I worked, I mean, in... in um, different like retail stores I always liked the idea of you know yeah just working but Mm -hmm. then as I uh, got older I started going out and I was going out a little underage but I was was, (laughs) statute of limitations has expired (laughs) yeah Uh, but I but I was going but I was going out and I uh, made some friends in a club and I my my first a job in a club was when I was 17 and I was working on like the door in a club um and it was fun I I made some very I I made some very interesting friends and interesting people uh in my life that I think just really shaped my experience of being young and living in London and that kind of club culture and I think that all of those things trickle into my music and my inspiration and where that all came from um, and then I left that job because I remember one night my friends couldn't get in to the club and they didn't let me let them in. And I was like, oh, I just don't want to do this anymore. Like, this is just so horrible. And so then I went to work at La Bodega Negra, which was, um, yeah, like an upscale kind of Mexican mm-hmm. restaurant in Soho. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I worked there up until the point that I got signed. Now, the connecting those dots... During all this time, this is when YouTube, SoundCloud, things are starting to get going a little yeah. bit more. Stuff that may have made it feel more possible when you were in Kosovo if it had existed. Yeah. But meanwhile, it's happening now. You're putting covers online. You're putting some original stuff. Mm. And then I think you you were doing some vocals for a commercial. That was yeah. important, right? Yes, exactly. So that kind of goes back to what you were saying about like the, the modeling thing. I am... Um, so while I was uh, in school, I was posting covers up online and they would just be like, hey, I'm do I'm 15 years old and this is my cover of Super Duper Love by Joss Stone, you know? <laughs> and uh, I, I, I was posting a lot online and also at the same time, you know, always working. I had been scouted in Oxford Circus to from a modeling agency, but I was put on like a commercial board and got sent out to do some auditions and stuff. And, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I basically, I didn't, I didn't, I did a commercial and I had to do the singing for it. And I worked with a producer for two weeks on that. And afterwards he was like, Hey, do you want to maybe write a song? And I was like, absolutely. Like I would love to get in the studio and write a song together. And we wrote a song and I didn't hear from him after a while. And then he contacted me and he was like, Hey, I would love to talk to you about a potential publishing deal. And I was like, a publishing deal? I don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. 
And so um, I basically, through the covers that I had posted on online on YouTube and on Twitter and SoundCloud, there was a young producer called Felix Joseph who had heard my cover of Chance the Rapper, Cocoa Butter Kisses from SoundCloud. And he had contacted me and was like, hey, like, um, if you ever want to work in the studio together, let me know. But in the meantime, if you need anything, this is my number. I'd never met him, but I called him and I was like, hi, Felix. I know we've never met, but I, um, I was just wondering, you know, I've been offered a publishing deal and I don't even know what that is. Um, do you have anybody who could help me? And he was like, well, I, I can't really give you advice on that, but I've got a really good lawyer who you should go and meet and he can chat to you about it. And so, I, yeah, this is me. I was at 17 years old and I go to this law firm in Hammersmith in London and I sit down with um, my lawyer. Well, he then became my yeah, lawyer, yeah. but a lawyer um, called Lawrence and, and he basically sat me down and was like, look, don't sign this deal. Um, let me help you find a manager. And he was the one who kind of sat me down and explained really the ins and outs of um, what a publishing deal was and, you know, the different aspects of it. And that was kind of the beginning of everything. Yeah, because, I mean, you've said, I guess he then connected you with Ben Mawson, who had been the person working with Lana Del Rey and was like, became mm. your your manager at that yeah. point. And you've said at that point everything changed in, in the sense that you soon had a record deal of your own well I was um I was just going to the studio every single day and I was writing non-stop and there was a song that I'd written with uh my friends Tommy Baxter Adam Midgley and Jez O'Connell called Hotter Than Hell yes That song just kind of caught the attention of some record labels. And everything just kind of started happening so fast. And that was when I met my A&R, Joe Kentish, who um, is, is a dear friend of mine and, and we still work together to this day because we've, um, I don't know, we just have such a such a great relationship on, on just, I don't know, creating records together. But I just, um, I don't know, I felt like he immediately understood who I was as an artist and gave me the space to really grow. And um, I just, yeah, I just kept kind of, I, I don't know, I just felt really connected to him. And I was like, you know what, I, I'm going to sign to Warner Records. And that's where I threw, like I signed my deal. And then I threw a little drinks party at La Bodega Negra on the night that I signed. Nice. Um, with, with also, you know, having also kind of handed in my um, resignation at working as a hostess and with the hopes that maybe I wouldn't have to come, come back. back. <laughs> well, so that's 2015. I know there was a lot of travel and writing and all of that over the next two years. Mm. And I think, you know, just milestones along the way that may seem like not as big now as they did at the time. But I imagine, you know, going on The Tonight Show to do Scared to be Lonely. That was, I think, in that period perhaps uh, yeah well actually the first ever tv i did was the tonight show yes in 2016 they were the first yeah american t 
TV, TV yeah. that had me. And I actually sang Hotter Than Hell. Hotter Than Hell, okay. Yeah. And all basically leading up to this first self-titled album in 2017, mm. which people now know went platinum with six singles that were platinum and all that. But at the time, as you... I wonder if we can just talk about a couple of like case studies from that. Just mm. So Last Dance... You have said, quote, it was the song where we figured out what my sound was going to be, mm. close quote. So I know that you'd separately said you'd always wanted to combine hip-hop and pop, but what was it about Last Dance that, how would you identify what your sound was as a result of that? It's quite interesting um, hearing that back because I, I haven't thought about that process of uh, making my first record in a in in a little while, especially as I've been just like in busy, yeah. busy and caught <laughs> up in 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 working on on my new record, but there's always one song that for me kind of dictates what the rest of it's going to sound like. Even though looking back on my first record and I and I listen back to it, it feels to me there's so many songs of me figuring out where I was heading next. I was learning so much about myself in the process. I was writing for about three, four years while at the same time releasing a lot of singles because I felt like I needed to put out a lot of songs in order to be heard before I even put out my first right. album. So it was a really, really long journey. And also at the same time, I basically toured the world three times with that one album, seeing the rooms kind of get a little bit bigger every time. But even the idea of, of merging hip hop and pop, it was like my love for Nelly Furtado and then my love for J. Cole. Or like my love for Kendrick yeah. or, you know, what I loved was the storytelling in hip hop. And then, you know, the way that the pop records, dance records made you feel. And it was like, how was I going to put the two together? With the first album, there, there's so many songs that sound so different, but they really changed my life in so many ways where I was I was really learning and leaning into like, the the songwriting process of really being vulnerable and talking about my experiences and emotions with the idea that maybe someone out there might hear them and this is me spilling my guts essentially oh, yeah. for everyone to hear um but it it's just yeah it was just such an uh, such an amazing experience and for last dance in particular what i loved was was the electronic sounds in it but at the same time a really well electronic dancey pop sounds sonically with a with a real kind of personal story intertwined and that was uh something that I felt really emotionally made me feel like I was on the right track for that record and it was sort of about being homesick because you had been was, out of, on the road for so long it was long. about being homesick I'd written that song in um in Toronto and Toronto it was, I think, October time, and it was really cold, and I, I knew that I was going to be on the road for a really long time, and I was starting to get a little bit of my London blues. Yeah, yeah. And that was the song that, that I wrote because of it. Fatal attraction, yeah, we might just end up crushing, but I'm ready if it happens with you. Made me out in Cali when I'm far away from family, and I need someone to hold on to. You're the only thing I know And I don't wanna let this go Close to you I feel, feel like I'm at home Can't wait till we're alone Hey, it's Kaylee 
Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, blow your mind. Uh, first song that really hit the radio, I think, in America. Yeah. Um, first time you're on the Billboard Hot 100. And this one was, you're talking a moment ago about being vulnerable, sharing stuff about yourself. Mm. You've said that that was actually sort of because somebody had made comments or comment to you when you had been modeling or, or something along those lines? Gosh, I don't quite remember that in particular. Well, I think it, it was, I think maybe, yeah. Or just being comfortable in your own. I think it was yeah. more, yeah, about kind of people telling you that you're not good enough. Right. And it was a bit of an in-your-face yeah. record yeah, yeah. of like, I'm not going to take that. Yeah. And I'm going to stand my ground nice. and I deserve to be here. Yeah. And that was kind of blow your mind. Yeah. yeah. Hey, if you don't like the way I talk, then why am I on your mind? If you don't like the way I rock, then finish your glass of wine. We fight and we argue, you'll still love me blind. If we don't fuck this whole thing up, guaranteed I can blow your mind. And tonight I'm alive in a dollar sign. Also on this first album, amazingly, which just keeps going and going. New rules. First number one in the UK. First to break into the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. Second song by a woman to hit a billion Spotify streams. Now, this one is an interesting thing because I guess you've also talked about how when you're singing, it's almost acting as well or inhabiting a character. Mm -hmm. So you can, even if it's not your experience or your feelings you can flip it in your yeah mind was that what you would say this was an example of yeah definitely I mean um new rules and it, it's it was all it was also very interesting because I love to write all my own songs I definitely felt uh, a feeling of like oh I don't know if I want to sing this song because I didn't write it um which was the case with new rules but it was a song that I felt I resonated with so deeply. I embodied it. I, When I sang it, it was mine, you know? And I felt like um, it was, I don't know, it's such a strong song about the things that you should or shouldn't do in, in you know, your, your dating life, essentially. <laughs> and I felt so strong and empowered when I sang New Rules. Yeah. And I just felt like I embodied that character. And sometimes you manifest an energy into your life. And as time's gone gone by and I've written other songs, um, I, I really feel that to be true. It's like the more you sing something, the more you perform, the more you hear, you know, you, you share that with, with people, you really embody that energy. One... Don't pick up the phone You know he's only calling Cause he's drunk and alone Two Don't let him in You have to kick him out again Three Don't be his friend You know you're gonna wake up In his bed in the morning And if you're under him You ain't getting over him I got no rules I count him 
And that was also, I guess, the case in terms of changing things around a little bit to um, flip the way things are with Hotter Than Hell as well, which was also mm. on that album. Yeah. But I think I think there was a lot of like wanting to... I, I was going through a, a bad relationship, you know, when I was writing my first record. And so now also looking back because it, once I put my songs out, I really don't listen to them. I have this thing that until, you know, unless I'm preparing for tour or something, that's when I'll listen to my songs. But I really feel like it's a big release for me. It's very cathartic to just put them out into the into the world and they no longer belong to me. So now looking back in hindsight, all the themes that were going through this record were a feeling of wanting to reclaim my strength and my power and where I stood in a relationship and wanting to give myself this like feeling of confidence and that no one could put me down um so it's it's yeah it seems to be a common theme in well, the, the self-titled record <laughs> and it's interesting though because that whole what you said you were striving for there could be summed up in the phrase i don't give a fuck which is Definitely. i think the last one that was actually written for that album for that right? album yeah, yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was the it was the last record that that made it onto the self-titled album. No, I don't give a damn. You keep reminiscing on when you were my man, but I'm over you. Now you're all in the past. You talk all that sweet talk, but I ain't coming back. Cut you off. I don't need your love, so you can try all you want. Time is up, I'll tell you why. So uh, yeah. after that, but before the great second album, which is Pandemic, you know, gave us some a reason <laughs> to not jump off the roof. Uh, there was the first time you worked with Mark Rotson, which is obviously going to connect back with Barbie in a, in a little bit. But just can you talk about with with Electricity, how you guys first connected and mm. was it clear that you guys, there was some something uh that you liked about working with each other even then yeah well so it's quite funny because it feels like it's all very full circle now um with with everything barbie related but i met mark ronson through my friend andrew wyatt mm -hmm. and andrew wyatt and i had written the very first song i'd ever released called new love yes and it was me andrew wyatt and emile haney and we'd worked together and written this song. And it was the, the first thing that I ever put out with the video. And I was very excited. And uh, Andrew's a very, very close friend of mine. We did two songs on my first album together. And um, I, when Mark was working on Silk City, he was speaking to Andrew and was like, oh, I'm looking for, you know, an, an artist who wants to write a song with me, but who has like a deeper, maybe soulful voice or something. and Which he had a little experience with, with <laughs> Amy Winehouse, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, I mean, that I've always just been such a big fan of, you know, Mark's work, but the Amy records are something that I hold very, very dear to my heart. And uh, going back to, to, you know, Mark wanting someone with a deep kind of raspy voice... <laughs> Andrew, the first person that came to his mind was me. Uh, I mean, I'm so grateful that, that you know, I, I was the person that came to mind. And, and Mark reached out to me and was like, hey, I'm um, a friend of Andrew's and I, I really like your work and I would love to write 
a song with you if if you'd be down. I'm doing this thing called Silk City with Diplo and um and I I came to the studio here in LA, which was when which was when Mark was living here. And uh and we yeah, we worked on electricity. So let me And it was both for Electricity for Best Dance Recording and Best New Artist. That was all at the same Grammys in 2019. So when he reached out to you, 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 it was still, I mean, people, you were on the rise, but this was kind of happening all at the same time, it was, right? Yeah, it was all happening at the same time. It was, um, yeah, just a really surreal moment in my life, you know, that, that, that night at the Grammys, I, I mean, us winning the best dance recording and then me going on and getting best new artist. I just couldn't believe it. Like I was absolutely gobsmacked. I feel like even when I think about the speech or how I felt when I got up to, to accept my award, I think I blacked out in the moment. <laughs> like it just felt like so unbelievable that it was, it was happening to me. I, I was just so grateful and, and really from, from that moment on, like my whole, life changed i was gonna ask about that because you know i'd love to hear how just on a day-to-day basis it changed but also did there did you start feeling pressure or putting pressure on yourself like the sophomore album is always probably Mm. very intimidating because all right especially when you've received so much positive feedback for your first album and then this single with mark like what do you do? Do you do more of the same kind of thing that's worked? Do you then, or do you instead branch out and take a chance that people are going to respond to something very different? Like, take me through your thought process and and daily life in that aftermath of suddenly being somebody that everybody knew. Well, gosh, I mean, there was, it was, it was an interesting time in my life because I had like a, a feeling of being celebrated, which was a really lovely feeling after doing something that you really love. But there was also, uh, you know, I, I felt like that there was like this video online of me dancing and people were like laughing at it or whatever. And that was really hard for me as a as a young artist because I was doing like, uh, I, I was doing something that I really loved, but it also, I felt like the wrath of the internet. So I also had like, you know, maybe people telling me like, oh, she's got no stage presence or she doesn't deserve to be here or she's just not good enough or whatever. So I had a a lot of that also weighing on top of like feeling like I'm on cloud nine and I'm in this really special place in my life and let's see where I'm going to go next. So it was an interesting thing to juggle, but I think what I decided, which was the best decision I'd ever made was I was like, right, I'm going to have to start making my new record. I'm going to get off Twitter. I'm deleting this thing off my phone. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to think about, you know, what other people might want me to do. I don't want to recreate the success that I had with my first album. I'm so grateful for everything that that record gave me. But I want to branch out. I want to do something different. I want to push myself outside of my comfort zone. And 
um, prove that I'm here to stay in a way. I had that real fire in my chest that was, you know, really adamant to create something that I was really, really proud of that felt very refined um, in the sense of, um, you know, like I said with my first record, it was a lot of different songs of me figuring out who I was. This Future Nostalgia album was very much um, carefully curated for it to all be one world. And it was my first kind of experience of creating an era, I guess, you know. Right. That's and, a new way to describe it. Yeah. And 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 so it was like um it it was the idea of going back to my early influences, the things that made me feel nostalgic, that made me feel like I there was a place where I could be seen and heard and disco music did that for me. But disco music has done that for history you know it's it's always been a place of freedom and community and togetherness and it, it it was the it was the genre of music that brought people together from all walks of life where they could feel like a unit or feel you know like they were around like-minded people and that was really the energy that I wanted to bring into future nostalgia but also with influences of like Jamiroquai and Maloko and um, you know, the, the, these kind of artists that were just so inspiring to me. Um, uh, again, from when I was younger, that, that I just, I, I loved so much. Well, so, you know, again, you pour your heart and soul into this thing, and then March 12th or whatever happens, this is supposed to come out March 27th, mm. and the world is shut <laughs> off. Yeah. How close did we come to just not having this come out when it's it? Um, you know, it was so heartbreaking, I guess, because, because I had started promoting my record already. I had like, gone on the road, like not gone on the road, but done like Don't Start Now. I was promoting it. Um, the last thing I did was I performed at Mardi Gras in Sydney. And uh, I remember landing back home in London and all of a sudden it was, things were getting very, very serious. And it was like, okay, like things are going to shut down. And I was about to prepare to go on tour. And so it was like, okay, we're going to postpone the tour for a, a couple months and and see. And then things were just like, no, they're completely shutting down. And so then it was like a whole conversation of, well, are we going to release the record at this time? What should we do? And I felt so strongly about the fact, even though in my head I had envisioned that this was an album that was going to be heard out and get people dancing, Um. It was, it was, I don't know, it felt necessary to me to get it out there. And I was like, you know what, what whatever's supposed to happen, this is what, you know, what, what, whatever's supposed to happen with it will. And of course, it, people loved it. It was, it lifted a lot of spirits. And it kept people dancing. It kept their, people dancing kept at people home dancing in their homes. <laughs> and for that, I'm, I'm. I'm very, very grateful that it was the album that did that. And some, just quickly, I'll note some all-time an unplanned but classic uh, memes and things, uh, thanks to some of your lyrics, don't show up, don't come out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I should have stayed at home. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was fun. Now, as we did with the first album, can I just prompt you a couple more case studies? Just so, of course. So, of course, we got to talk about levitating. Mm-hmm. You want me, I want you, baby. My sugar boo, I'm levitating. The Milky Way, we're renegating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
this is as big as it can as song can be. Um, Seventy seven weeks on the Billboard Hot one hundred, which is just insane. Only the fifth song to ever spend seventy or more weeks on the Hot one hundred, which goes back to nineteen fifty eight. Oh Most gosh. weeks ever on the list for a song by a woman, passing Leanne Rhymes, How Do I Live? 41 weeks in the top 10, the most for a song by a woman, and second overall only to The weekend, Blinding Lights. I mean, this is insane. Longest charting Hot 100 in the history of Warner Records. My question is, how did that one particularly come together, if we can just a bit of the origin story? And also, would you have ever imagined that that one, versus a lot of other great songs, why is that the one that took off in that way? Maya, well, uh, you never really know with a song, I think. Um, but when uh, I was working on Levitating, I, I went into the studio and Coz, the producer, he basically played a track that he was working on. And absolutely immediately, I pressed the record button um, on my voice memo app and just started the melody of what is the da 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 that part yes. of Levitating. It was just such an instant feeling for me. Um, I also did it with my really close friends, Sarah Hudson and Coffee Clarence Jr. And I don't know, when you create something with really close friends and there's such a beautiful energy and you feel the excitement in the room, you hope that it translates the same. Um, and I feel like that with a lot of experiences that I've had with my music. I always go like, I hope people feel it the same way like I felt when I wrote it. Um, and it it was it was like uh, it was the song that dictated what the rest of the record was going to sound that was like. That, one. Okay. that was the one. And it was the time when I left the studio and I was like, okay, I'm onto something. I know what I'm doing now. And uh, yeah. It was, uh, that was the one. Pretty special. Okay, and then quickly the other two from that one that just as our little study, uh, Don't Start Now goes to number two on the Hot 100, highest charting single at that point. Mm. Um, and again, you're, I know disco is where you talked a little bit about, it, and I think we both have in common, I read the Just Love That documentary about the Bee Gees, which was oh so great. Oh my God, great, I love right? that documentary right? about Amazing. the Bee Gees. So good. How to Mend a Broken yes, Heart. Yes, Frank mm. Marshall. Oh, how do you mend it? Yeah. I think, how do you mend a broken Amazing. Yeah. But for you, Don't don't Start Now is sort of, I mean, this is the one record of the year, song of the year, best pop solo performance ultimately at the Grammys, but that one, anything you want to break down? Yeah, I mean, that was like the first song that I released from the Future Nostalgia record, and that was what I felt was really illustrating what the rest of the record was going to be like. It had all these nostalgic influences, um, disco influences, live instrumentation, but at the same time it felt so fresh and new. And it was, you know, the moment where I revealed my like two-tone hair, like the blonde with the dark underneath. And it was like my first experience of really starting to create a world around my music. And I just, I have so many beautiful memories, you know, connected to that and, you know, getting to, to work on it with, my friends Emily Warren and Ian Kirkpatrick and Caroline Aylin. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, it, it, it was just such a massive Kickstarter for me in, you know, getting people to see a whole nother side of me creatively. If you don't want to see me dancing with somebody Don't show up, don't come out, don't start caring about me now. 
last of the three, Break My Heart, which uh, you have said you were out of your comfort zone writing it, but then you learned that that's actually a good thing mm. when writing. What, what does that mean? I was out of my comfort zone because it was very personal. It was very like um, in the moment I, I, I felt like, um, you know, sometimes when I write things, like I said, I feel like maybe I manifest them. I was like, oh my God, am I going to write a song about a guy that's about to break my heart? It's like, I don't know if I'm ready for this <laughs> right now, but I, I, that's, that's really how I, how I felt in the moment. And I think I just kind of learned how amazing it is to just be so open about, uh, yeah, my, my own experiences. And actually Break My Heart was, was the last one that I had written for Future Nostalgia. You know you can get whatever you want from me Whenever you want it, baby It's you and my reflection I'm afraid of all the things it could do to me If I would've known it, baby I would've stayed at home Cause I was doing better alone But when you said hello I know there was the end of it all I should've stayed So obviously everyone loves Future Nostalgia. Then there's in between after that, not part of that, but with Elton Cold Heart and saw you at the, his last show at yeah. the Understand. That was awesome. But th- it, meanwhile, already we had Barbie in the works. I know it's been a little while. How did that come about? Was was it Mark? Was it Greta? Who reaches out and and what did what was the pitch? Yeah, Mark uh, was the one who reached out to me. And he just got, he's like, I, I've been working on the music for the new Barbie film by Greta Gerwig. And it's quite possibly the funniest script I've ever read. And uh, there's a big dance section in it. And I would absolutely love for you to write it with me. And um, I was on my Future Nostalgia tour. So for me, I was like, oh, I for sure want to do this. I'm such a fan of both Mark and Greta and, and to get to work with them on in, in this capacity. But I was like, what is the deadline? And am I going to be able to to do this while I'm still on the road? And uh, Mark and Greta were so excited that I was up for it. And we just made it work. I flew to New York and we just spent so much time like crafting this bespoke dance blowout party, you know, banger, essentially, um, which was which was just so such a different experience from any of the other experiences that I'd had writing music for myself. Um, because when I write music for myself, I have such a, you know, a, a personal vision in mind. Here I was writing a story about Barbie, about her character. And so it was, it was interesting to kind of work to an assignment and, you know, write a song about what in the film is Barbie's best day ever. And then she starts having, as the day goes on, thoughts of death. And from that point on, everything kind of goes upside down and she has this existential crisis and has to go into reality and discover patriarchy. And it just, there's a lot that happens. But it sets it all up. But it sets it all up. And it was like, how do I create a song that, you know, really does that moment justice, especially with all the cast members in it, um, all the Barbies dancing in there, and how do I have this underlying story alongside it? It's like, yes, it's a big disco moment in the film. Um, but lyrically, although it's got to be fun, I have to be able to tell Barbie's story in this way. And 
how how are we gonna how are we gonna do this? And I wrote this with Andrew Wyatt and Mark Ronson and Caroline Aylin, and it felt like a very 360 moment on how we all got together in the first place. Are you thinking as you're working on a song like that, it's, yes, it's for a movie, but you also need to have it stand on its own at a club or elsewhere. Like, how are you, and the lyrics have to mean multiple, th- like, is it, would you say it's harder? I know it's different, but is it even harder than the writing a song that's not for a movie? Well, I think uh, when you're writing from personal experiences, you're, you know, putting yourself out there in a very vulnerable position. What was interesting here with Barbie is, although we were tailoring the song pretty much to like a score, to to the visual, to make it really fit in, the song also stands alone. Yeah. And um, when... um, you know, when the when the song was finished, I think what I just kind of realized is how much I relate to Barbie, to Dance a Night, to the idea of resilience throughout, you know, any adversity of whatever life throws at you and being able to just carry on and, you know, uh, I don't know, show a completely another side of me. It also, Dance a Night, to me, felt like my farewell to future nostalgia in a way that dancing the night and getting through whatever life throws at you. When I think back to the time when people told me I couldn't dance or I had no stage presence or I couldn't do these things and I decided to instead make them all dance, you know, with with the music I was making, that's what Dance the Night represents to me is is that complete shift in my life where I was able to kind of find myself you know, again, and and really feel like I could I can stand, you know, through anything, and as long as I have passion and and a dream and a want to to create something. Watch me dance, dance the night away. My heart could be burning, but you won't see it on my face. Watch me. I also play a part in this movie. Are you interested in doing more acting moving forward? Um, maybe. Yeah. I, I had a lot of fun doing the cameo for, for Barbie and just to be on set and, and feel the energy of all the cast and crew members. And everyone was so, um, so passionate and so generous with themselves in every aspect of wanting to make this the best thing that they'd ever made and it was so dedicated and you can really feel that dedication and you know like I said about the music you know when I make a song I go I hope people can feel the energy of how I felt when I made this record and the same thing I think goes for the way that this film was made like I think people can really feel the basis and the heart and the soul of which um, everybody put everything that they had into it. With the last minute, can we do just a kind of fun, first thing that comes to mind, Grammy noms came out in the last week. Yeah. What was your, how did you learn the news? (laughs) I got a a text from a friend who was like, "Uh, did you know that you just got nominated for two Grammys for for Dance the Night? And I was already like on such a high because I had just released my my new single Houdini. And that was just, 
absolutely flying. And then I get this news and I was just absolutely in a massive whirlwind. I just couldn't believe what what I was hearing. I was just so happy to to be nominated, especially for a song that means so much to me. And, and I just feel like it's such a big part of me. Next to these rapid fire, you mentioned Houdini. This is the lead single of the next album. Um, you have said this is going to be more personal mm. than others. What, uh, just in a soundbite, what can you tease about this album, which I think is going to in full come out in the new year? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, the reason why it's personal is with every experience, with every moment that I've spent in the studio, I've learned to just open up more and give more of myself and not be afraid of that aspect of my vulnerability. And also just with every record learning, yeah, more about myself and wanting it to be, you know, more organic in different ways, want to grow sonically and change it up. And this one's a lot more psychedelic in its in its uh, production. And I'm just very excited because it feels like a, like a new step for me. And lastly, this is a question. There was literally a title of a movie, but just curious, you know, can a song change the world? Can a song change the world? Mm, that's interesting. I think um, I think music um, gives people the, the, the feeling that, I don't know, music I think gives people the feeling that, that you can really imagine a, a world with peace. Like it gives you that space to dive into, I don't know, another world that that gives you a lot of uh, comfort and clarity, even when things in the world aren't going so well. It's like uh, it's a it's a safe space. So whether or not it can change the world, I don't know. But for me, it gives me um it gives me comfort, and uh, yeah, it it makes me feel very much at home wherever I am. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's great thank to you so much. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.